0: Good morning, and welcome to Positively Politics, the show we break down the sometimes complicated and often negative world of politics in a straightforward, unbiased, and academically rooted way. My name is Dr. Laura Merfield wilson I'm an assistant professor of political science here at the University of Indianapolis, as well as the host of our show. And so I want to say good morning and thank you for joining me today. I can't believe it, but we only have two more shows until the new year, which is crazy to think about. I know if you're doing the math right now, you're thinking, no, no, there's more than that because there's there's more weeks, there's more Saturdays until 2018. But actually, I won't be on air next week. Um, we run special holiday programming with our station. I'm really proud to be a part of a station that does this and and recognizes the festivity and the importance of of the season. But nonetheless, I won't be with you then next week. And so we'll only have one more week until January. Luckily for us, all of the really big things are going to be happening in the upcoming days. And a couple of really important things have already happened um, in terms of kind of last minute December politics trickling in. And politics is funny like that, where I feel like sometimes you do have short breaks. You'll have lulls if you will, and I, I suspect that from Christmas to New Year's, that might be the case for us. Nothing too crazy going on. Of course, our state legislature is getting ready to ramp up for session. Congress, of course, will be on recess. Um, but Things still continue, but they're not quite as active. And then you have periods like this past week and what I think we'll see this upcoming week where, holy moly, every day is a headline. And and these are really exciting, crazy things going on. I feel like the last couple of weeks have been um, important things, but sometimes kind of downer topics and stuff that maybe isn't as, as promising or as exciting. But two really important things, one that's happened and one that is going to or potentially – I should say, potentially going to happen. Looking back this week, of course, would be the Doug Jones, Democrat from Alabama. That's right. Democrat from Alabama upset against Roy Moore, the Republican. Um, and what that means for the special Senate seat, the race. I think a lot of people have been reading into this. I don't want to say too much. I, I don't think that's a thing to read into something too much. But I think they've been interpreting it um, in a way that probably isn't quite as accurate. So I, I wanted to talk about that. What does this mean? Why do we care about it in Indiana? And we should, in my opinion, we should care about this. And then the other thing, looking forward to next week, um you know, as we speak, Republicans are still negotiating on the tax plan, um bringing it out of reconciliation so that they can ultimately try and pass it. They have six days. And I'm a person who uh, gets a little anxious with deadlines. <laughs> I'm not a procrastinator. I'm not. Uh, but that said, I, I always get nervous when they're coming up really close. And so for Congress's sake, I'm, I'm a little anxious in this regard. But they have six days to actually pass through the plan. And as of yesterday, it looked questionable of whether or not they're going to do it. Now it looks more clear. Some things happened Friday afternoon. And we think that, in fact, um, this probably should go through. But Nonetheless, something that's really important. This would be big for the Republicans. Um, I think it could be good for Democrats as well. And definitely something great for the administration to uh, end the congressional session before the holiday um, the holiday break. So looking at back at an important election this week, on December 12th, so that was Tuesday, Doug Jones was a Democrat competing against Republican Roy Moore for Jeff Sessions' Senate seat. Remember, this is the one, of course, that Sessions left to take on the position of attorney general in the Trump administration. And thus it was vacant. Um, And you had Luther Strange kind of stepping in. He was initially appointed by the the Alabama then-governor, Robert Bentley, before he stepped down from office um, upon threats of impeachment for a relationship he had while married and in office and improper use of funds and, and everything that happened there. So Luther Strange is serving in this capacity. And then that was who the president backed in the Republican runoff election because there were so many Republican candidates running for this seat that they ultimately have a runoff between the top two getters, which were Roy Moore and Luther Strange. And initially president Trump had supported Luther Strange ultimately Roy Moore wins out in this special election, and it's clear it's going to be a Moore versus Jones race. and And then the Republicans um, had really had a conundrum on their hand. And I think this is one of the things I find most interesting about the race itself. Is, is a lot of people are reading into it and saying like, "Oh, you know, Alabama's purple now," <laughs> and uh, and oh, this is the this is just the the turn the Democrats needed. You, it's difficult to say that, just just to say that, because there are so many different dynamics that happened between the Jones and Moore race. You can't take out of the fact um, that Moore was accused of child molestation, sexual harassment, um, and that there were repeated confirmations of, of these accusations. Um, and a number of these came out this past year. There's the famous Washington Post article, and then you hear more and more women coming out about it. And, and it's not just something that comes out and is disregarded as honestly, as it might've been, if it happened, not even a year ago, if it happened six months ago, people may have said, okay, but, but in this post Harvey Weinstein era where we actually do take those things seriously, when something like this comes out, you saw a a really hot discussion of what does this mean? You know, are, the, are these true? What does this tell us about his character? Everything that had happened occurred years and years ago when he was in his 30s, but there were repeated instances. It wasn't a one-time thing, and it wasn't also a small thing. Um, now, to me, those don't matter. And, and this is just a personal preference. But, you know, as you look through, like, I know so many people who say, oh, what Moore did was bad. But, you know, what... Um, What Al Franken did was okay; It wasn't as bad, you know, and and what Conyers did was really bad. But then it wasn't quite the same as what President Trump did. You can go through like making your own hierarchy of morals. To me, it it doesn't matter. The severity doesn't matter. The frequency doesn't matter. How long ago doesn't matter. I I hold my public officials to a very high standard um, because most of them meet that standard and they are representing us. They are our voice, you know, in public office, and they're making decisions that impact our lives. I want these to be good, ethical people. Uh, so to, to me, that's that like slippery slope of well, this person's okay, and they should stay in office, but that person shouldn't. I think you're setting up a little straw man argument for yourself right there. But that was the challenge that the Republican Party particularly had with Roy Moore. And, and you remember, we talked about this. Weeks ago, Mitch McConnell and the GOP at the national level had said, we're not going to support him. We think he should drop out of the race. And then just a week A week and a half ago, um, some of that that lack of support had been rescinded. (laughs) That makes sense. The support had been revived, and all of a sudden, more was getting this um, this support from the party. I I think it was very difficult for the party in the state where you say, "What do you want to do?" And likewise, for a lot of voters. Now, this is not to detract from Jones. I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about Roy Moore and the question marks behind him. But when people say, oh, Jones's election is, this is this national movement. This is the beginning of, I I am less careful i'm more careful i should say i am less convinced that's the case now it might be i think this is great for the democratic party i could give them the momentum they need to hold on for 11 more months in terms of you know almost a take back the senate they lost it in 2014 this could be the push to get things going there and i think it it does say a lot um the, the, the mobilization for the party, something that they really struggled with in 2016, arguably in 2014 as well. The fact that they were able to successfully do this in Alabama, um, you know, it, it could say things on a national level. But when people read so much into it, you have to consider the fact that you had Roy Moore, who had a very unique uh, background. He, he wasn't a perfect candidate, he was very flawed. And it reminds me, in a lot of ways, of our last presidential election, where you had two candidates that a lot of people didn't really love. You know, And they'd say, well, I don't like this about this candidate, but I'll still vote for them. And the challenge that Roy Moore posed to Alabama voters, especially the Republicans, was do you vote for someone that you do not agree with on a moral level, but represents your party and maybe your policies better than the opposition? To me, when you look at this race... The two people who really broke through and and really just two people that really made this happen were both Senator Richard Shelby. So he's a senior senator from Alabama and then the African-American voting bloc. So with Senator Shelby, he came out days before the election uh, and, and in a really candid interview said that he couldn't vote for more. He just on his conscience, he couldn't do it, that he was writing in another Republican's name. And so he he wasn't going against his party, um, but at the same time he wasn't the doing the party over country, you know, as uh, Kay Ivey, who's the current governor of Alabama, was doing. And I'm citing that as an example. Jeff Flake, the junior senator from Arizona, who announced retirement two months ago, um, wrote kind of famously a I think it was a hundred dollar campaign check. to Doug Jones and you know Flake's a Republican Jones the Democrat but in the memo line he said country over party and I think that was the sentiment it wasn't the words that he used but I think it's the sentiment that Senator uh, Shelby had as well we just you know couldn't have done that if you're just joining us this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson I'm talking about more Jones and why this matters to Indiana and the other group I mentioned in terms of who really brought it out who who really um is deserved credit for the Jones victory would be the African-American voting bloc. And they came out in in droves that you haven't seen in the state of Alabama and really in this country, if we're being honest, since the 2008 election of Barack Obama. If you look at the numbers themselves, and there's these fantastic uh, infographics going around, so it's really easy to find them, but based on gender and race, so white men, white women, black men, and black women, like overwhelmingly... Black men and black women. And by overwhelmingly, I mean 93 and 98 percent respectively, voted for Jones over Moore. And I, I can only imagine, I know a lot of people have mentioned this, but part of that was because of the re- remark that Moore made that the country was better during times of slavery because everyone was happy, which you know, is going to resonate very strongly with African American voters in the state of Alabama where slavery was allowed, and I feel very confident their ancestors were, in fact, not happy. You you know, this was another important group that came out in support of Jones. And when you look at the race overall, it was incredibly close. The Secretary of State, uh, Merritt, was counting through, and they estimate that they had 22,000, almost twenty three thousand votes for writing candidates i noticed some of them if it's always a fun joke some of them are for nick saban i am from alabama i love alabama football Roll tide he's he's the crimson tide head coach (laughs) i just don't know guys i don't know how he could be a senator and a football coach i think the competition is stiff out there we barely made it in the top four thank you so much ohio state i'm very sorry to all buckeye fans but You had all these write-in votes, and that ultimately made the difference. Because even if you look at the split in terms of the the vote difference, this was a very, very close race. So Jones ultimately pulled through with 49.9% of the vote. I keep wanting to say majority, and you know you're familiar with the numbers, of course, that's actually just a plurality because the majority would be over 50%. And then Moore was slightly behind, um, just a little over 1%, with 48.38% compared to Jones' 4992 Now, one thing people say, like, oh, will there be a, a recount, you know, what, what will they do? You have to have within half a percent to automatically trigger a recount for the state. And so the only way you would have a recount, which could happen, would be Roy Moore personally funding it himself. That'd be very tedious. I haven't heard anything of the sort that that was actually going to happen, other than it's a possibility that could, but I haven't heard anyone saying that's what's going to. Um, And in addition to be very expensive, it'd take an incredible amount of time. And I just don't know that Roy Moore has that. Um, That said, he hasn't conceded the race yet, but a recount is highly unlikely. Um, and you don't have the certified vote. You probably won't have that for a couple weeks um, when the Secretary of State, John Merrill, will ultimately produce that. But nonetheless, it looks like Jones has won it out. And so, of course, these are this is the question. What are the implications? So certainly, I'm sure the Donnelly campaign is taking notes. And granted, he's not running against Roy Moore. <laughs> There's Even people who wouldn't care for maybe Luke Messer or Todd Rokita um, – You know, they're not (laughs) remore in terms of liability as a candidate. I I just keep laughing a little bit because I think, no, they're, they're completely different. But this does say something in terms of the possibility of a Democratic candidate who is good at mobilizing and capable of getting voters out there. Your traditional Democratic Party base. So not just relying and being fixated on the white working voter. Um, there are fewer African Americans, you know, population percentage-wise, in Indiana versus Alabama. But but looking at the party base, and this has been a real struggle for for the Democrats for a while, being able to motivate those voters and get them out to the polls, when we have a really exciting Senate race coming up next November. You know, I I can't help but think this could give the Democrats the kind of momentum they need. To propel their candidates to the center, and right now, now to understand the position that Jones is taking is a, is just to fill out Sessions' term, so he's not going to be in office for very long, and they'll they'll come up for reelection again. But nonetheless, right now that moves the balance just slightly in Democrats' favor. They lost the Senate in two thousand fourteen, and you know this past cycle they had forty eight to fifty two in terms of the breakdown now they'll have 49 to 51 it's one person closer and and the democrats did not have a good showing in 2016 maybe this is the kind of excitement that they need to rally the troops to gather to motivate the base and most importantly to mobilize the base and get those people out to vote Um, segueing just slightly here if you're joining us this is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson on Positively Politics Um, talking about the two important events this past week and this upcoming week this past week of course was Jones kind of upset victory against Roy Moore in Alabama they'll now have one Democratic Senator and one Republican Senator from that state much like us here in the Hoosier State and we'll have our own exciting Senate race in just shy of 11 months so exciting there Uh, But looking at what's coming up ahead, looking at this tax plan, and, and this is really important for the Republican Party. So talking about momentum and getting people out to vote, if the Republicans can pass this policy, this would be a great win for them. This would be something they need in order to say, look at what we did during this administration and look at what we would continue to do. Because quite frankly, and the research proves this, there is nothing like a record to run on. And there's nothing I, – I can stand up here all day as a challenger and say, if I was elected, I'd do this. And if I was elected, I'd do that. But if you're not in those seats in Congress and if you haven't dealt with the lobbyist with your – constituents with with all the different challenges within the party and outside the party that you're going to have, there's no easy vote. There's no easy policy that just simply does not exist in this political climate we have. And so to be able to say when I was in office, this is what we did. That's a huge feather in one's cap as we look through this reconciliation process and everything that's been happening this week to me was somewhat of a a roller coaster watching the tax policy go up and down in terms of support because it was questionable as to when you when you tackle one particular component one i'm going to focus on today is the child tax credit but when you when you're looking at that Realizing you have people who want that and people who don't. So how do you finagle it to include it to get the votes you need without upsetting people who would then rescind their vote if you went too far? And this is one of the things that I find really interesting is if, if you've been looking at how that has shaped up as a policy. I I remember watching this when it ultimately passed through the Senate floor a few weeks back, that late Friday night, <laughs> wee early hours of Saturday morning, one thing that Florida Senator Marco Rubio was very upset about was the child tax credit. And, and he was even more upset the following week when the president suggested that they could raise the corporate tax from 20 to 21 or 22 percent, um, but there was no discussion of the child tax credit, which was something that Rubio had been vehemently arguing for that Friday night and ultimately was shot down by the party. But what had been happening this week in terms of tax policy was it looked for a split second that you weren't going to have enough votes to pass it again in the House. And remember, so we're looking at 52-48, 52 Republicans, 48 Democrats. All 48 Democrats are going to vote against this. (laughs) There's there's no way policy-wise they will support it. You need all the Republican votes you can get if you're the party. And they already knew Bob Corker was against it. He was still against it for the same reasons he was against it before. He was concerned about the national deficit. There was nothing to appease him in terms of what they were willing to give. Thus, he's off the table. So now your balance is 51-49, precarious at best. Then you're looking at some question marks. You have Susan Collins. You have Mike Lee. You have Marco Rubio. You know, all these people, how you can only allow one, you know, one two people to defect tops and even you have one person defect um like bob corker you're okay if you have two people you know you can have mike pence come in as the leader of the senate and break the tie for you know as part of being vice president you can't have any more than that okay the thing that was really interesting was looking at the negotiation the republican made republicans made with marco rubio so he was really big on this this tax child credit and it looked like for Marco Rubio from Florida and Mike Lee from Utah that if this was not going to be considered in the new version they would not support it and and I say it looked like Mike Lee was never very specific on it but Marco Rubio was and Rubio had given interviews where he said if they can't do this you know for the working class of America I cannot support it he was very strong on that Um, and up until Thursday he said I won't support the bill because he felt so strongly that this part had to be included. So ultimately, it's Friday, I think Friday afternoon, it felt like yesterday. um where where there's a basically a concession given and that will allow the tax child credit the increase from eleven hundred to fourteen hundred in terms of the refundable part of a two thousand dollar child tax credit. So that brings up the threshold that impacts a lot more families. Ultimately, that was what Ruby was arguing for, and he It says essentially at this point, yes, now I will support the tax plan. But for the party, this is really important because the clock is a ticking and a talking. We have Friday before our Senate and our House are let out for a holiday recess. And so they do not have much time to make these negotiations, to make these decisions. Tax policy, I know I've said it many times, but it's worth repeating. Tax policy is inherently complicated. It's part of taxation. You're always creating loopholes. You're always trying to create a way that you tax people who you feel should be taxed more and you, you lessen up taxes on people you don't feel should be taxed. The whole questions about equality. And fairness, what is fair, what is equal, you know, going to the heart of tax policy. Just as for Democrats, Jones win could signify a much larger victory and a push for excitement, enthusiasm for the party. I, I think this policy is needed for the Republican Party as well. And it's complicated. Yes, it's difficult. There are very little time to complete it. It looks like it could be done. And I think for the party, this is a must-have. This is something they just have to complete. Uh, likewise, with Jones winning in Alabama, it, does it signify you know, big, larger changes, much like tax policy? No. <laughs> We're talking about one person, one policy. But does it show that parties who are organized and get together and work very hard and mobilize interest, it shows they can actually accomplish things? I think we all suffer when our parties get lazy or um, are just less motivated. Lazy sounds so harsh. Let's say less motivated. They're less motivated. They can rest on their laurels. They feel good about what they have. They rely on what they know. We we all suffer because politics is not static. The world in which we live is constantly changing. I want a policy and a party that represents these kind of changes and is, is actively working for my vote. And for my interest, I know that's exhausting for the political parties, but at the same time, this is not old school. You can't just count on someone always voting for the party just because they have. Democrats learned this a very hard way in 2016, relying on the white working class vote. You know, likewise, I think Republicans could find that out in 2018. If they're not able to get through tax policy. And people say, well, but what, what did you do? You know, you're in session for so long. What did you accomplish? I, I don't think either parties can just let this go. And we're better, even I say this, I'm sorry to my third party friends, but we are better as a country if you have two very competitive parties because they're interested. And then they're they're taking into consideration all the little differences among the people that support them and not just relying on their base, but they're looking for those independent voters, how to get them on their side. They're looking for those voters that maybe they've done well with, but not exclusively. You know, I'm thinking Hispanic voters maybe like a decade ago where it was really a toss up. It was like, oh. You know, Cuban-Americans tend to be conservative. Mexican-Americans tend to be liberal. Where would they fall? How will this divide out? And they tended to go more in support of Democrats, but they also don't tend to vote as frequently. But, you know, looking at those kind of differences, we need active and engaged parties. And that brings me to my hope for you this holiday season. (laughs) If you're joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. It's Positively Politics here on WICR. 88.7 The Diamond. In the few minutes I have left, especially because this is the last time I talk to you until after um, Christmas and Hanukkah, whatever holiday it is you celebrate around this time of year, I I wanted to say if I could ask for anything for any person, something I think everybody needs and could use more of, um, despite the fact that they may think it's not important, so I'm one of those kind of gift givers. I know. I don't buy the cool, exciting, shiny stuff. I buy the necessities. I think those are important. That That's very valuable. But in terms of something that people need, in this season of giving, I think we need to have more tolerance and a willingness to listen. And politically, I think that is so important. We can see examples of when this has gone very well and where people were willing to sit down and cross party aisles to accomplish things. And we've also seen a number of examples where this goes horribly. And then it's just hatred, and it's filling your own mind with ideas that support everything you already believe, creating yourself your own little echo chamber, and you never stop to listen to the opposition. I I think too often we do that. It's too easy to do that. I don't think that's the right thing we should do. And especially for this time of holiday season, I mentioned it during Thanksgiving. This is when people have a lot of political conversations. They're with family. You're always taught to not discuss religion and politics, and I, I don't know a lot about religion, not a religion professor, but I do know about politics. And I think being told, oh, don't talk about it. We just don't discuss that. thats I think that's completely wrong. For what we want as a democracy, You know, if we want people to be educated and engaged and informed, I, I want people who are well-rounded. And I, when I think of this as a professor, when I think of this as a parent, when I think of this as as a person, a friend, every capacity, uh, every role which I play, I think no, I I would want people to know different opinions because what I hope is the what they ultimately believe is not just the response of well that's how I've always believed and um, well that's tradition or that's that's just what that's what my parents told me you know it's it's a response of a well thought you know I I consider the options and. Ultimately, this is what I believe is most important. And to me, that is being an educated, enlightened, and engaged citizen. We won't all think the same. <laughs> I don't I don't think that's ever possible. I think that'd be awful in many ways for us to all be uniform in our thought and mind. I guess luckily, I don't think that's ever going to happen. At <laughs> least it's not a reality right now. But I want people to be open to different ideas. And so if you give yourself or anyone else a gift this season. And if you're cheap and practical like me, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't apologize. That's good. You're saving money. That's important. But something you can give in addition to, I don't know, the old navy socks that were on sale for a dollar at Thanksgiving, great value by the way, is the discussion of politics and is the tolerance and maybe even acceptance if you're ready for that of different viewpoints and perspectives and being willing to engage on a respectful level. That's very important here. On a respectful level that you can say, you know what, I don't agree with you and we're coming at it from different angles, but I see where you are. You know, I can understand why you believe that way. It's not how I believe, but I can understand that. I, I just think about what that would do for our social conversations, for the state of politics in our community and how people would feel if we had more conversations that were like that and fewer conversations that were the short snippy social media posts, um, trying to call people out or say, well, if you don't agree with me or if you didn't vote the way I voted or blah, 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 you know, just basically excluding people and and not engaging and not being open and welcoming. If there's anything I believe this time of year is about and this season is about is You know, it, it is in terms of opening up to community and being appreciative and grateful for what we have, um, but also understanding not everyone's from the same position we are. And so for me, I think the most important thing we can do in a holiday of giving is being tolerant, being understanding, ideally being accepting of differences, and especially those that are political, I encourage you to engage politically this holiday season, You know, whether or not it's over hot cocoa or Christmas dinner or whatever it might be that you do, to have a conversation with someone who feels differently than you, you know, and to not have it end in, in screaming and tears. That would be a holiday victory, and I think that would also be very helpful. Um, to you and to that person. So that was my wish for you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. This has been Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson on Positively Politics here on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. Feel free to shoot uh, email to me, reach out to me at lmwilson at und.edu. Always love hearing from you. But for WICR 88.7 The Diamond and Positively Politics, this has been Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson. Have a wonderful holiday, and I will catch you back once more before the new year.